<clears throat> well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning and um, to be able to preach the Word. So far, uh, as we've begun the new year, we've started a sermon series that I've called Vision for the Family. We haven't talked much about family yet, though. And so if you might have been wondering why I've called this Vision for the Family when we haven't really gotten to that point. We're getting there. And today, we're getting really, really close. The point for us to remember is that as we talk about God's plan and God's vision for the family, it begins with individuals. It begins with individuals. So the first step is always self-evaluation. I want to get right into the Word this morning, and I don't want to spend too much time in introduction because I think the Word's more powerful than anything I could come up with. And I want to let it speak for itself. So this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, we're going to read the same thing that we've been reading, but moving our focus to verse 6. We'll read from verse 8 all the way through verse 9. Now, if you haven't been with us, you might not realize that this particular passage of Scripture is pretty significant in the Jewish faith. In fact, this is one of the passages of Scripture that Jesus referred to when asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He referred back to the Shema, which means listen or hear, which is what we're reading today. And we're breaking it apart in different pieces. So as we read it, I want us to keep that in mind. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So far as we've studied this passage, my focus has been on understanding the background and what's caused this to be written in the first place. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know we've talked about Moses as the one writing this. And he's writing it to a generation a new generation of Israel who's about to leave his leadership and go into the promised land. And his focus is bringing the people back to remembering the things that God not only has done for them, but the things that God has commanded of them. He asks them to remember this. And this entire passage re-emphasizes the first part of the Ten Commandments. The, the focus that we have not only to obey God, but to love God, revere God, not have idols before God. And he's focusing now on the motivation behind all of that, that we should love God. As we look at the biblical narrative, and when I say biblical narrative, what I'm talking about is from Genesis to Revelation, what's happening in the Bible, we see over and over again a very simple pattern. God loves man. Even back to the beginning, an all-knowing and all-powerful God that created man. This same God 
created man already loving him, already knowing that man would fall into sinfulness. So this is the biblical narrative. God loves man and he creates him because he loves them. And then man, being man, falls into sin, falls into disobedience and turns away from God. And then God, again, is the one who restores that relationship. Over and over again in the Bible, this is the model that we see from Abraham and his children and the covenant that God made with them to disobedience, even into Egypt as Israel was put into bondage and then delivered again by God, only not to be given entry into the promised land because of their idolatrous ways. Instead, this new generation, an entirely new generation, getting ready to leave Moses and his leadership. These weren't the ones who had experienced the deliverance that happened in Egypt. This is a new generation, and Moses, knowing this biblical narrative, which goes on even after this, is pleading and emphasizing and asking God's people, stop. Quit being faithless people. Remember what's going on. He's trying to be a leader for the generations to come. His focus is really on reaching beyond what he's even able to influence. And the only way that he can do that is through parents that genuinely love God, that genuinely know God. The entire reason for man to fall away as a people, it's born into the nature of man. The sinful nature that we talk about every week. And that's why I think it's repeated over and over again in the Bible. Moses asks in verse 6 that these words that God has commanded them shall remain on the people's heart. This commandment or this instruction, this imperative is very clear that God's people should memorize God's word. There isn't much explaining that we need to do to understand what it means to keep these words on your heart. God's people should memorize Scripture. Now, as a pastor, I kind of have a bone to pick with the modern church. And listen to me. The church has done a great job of teaching students and children to memorize Scripture through programs like Awana and Sunday School. And what students accomplish is really remarkable when you think about all of the passages that students have memorized and committed to their memory. The reason we ask them to do this is because we also understand that they aren't capable without the Holy Spirit of understanding everything that's written in the Bible. But through memory... These verses have an impact in years to come as they remember truth. The church has not done a good job of emphasizing this importance in the lives of parents. If your children are memorizing more scripture than you, there's something wrong. I want to talk really quickly about the importance and the imperative of memorizing scripture. First of all, Jesus demonstrated for us that he memorized Scripture. Now, I mean, you can cop out and you can say that Jesus was God, that it was in fact his words, but Jesus, 
through his life demonstrated the importance that he placed on Scripture through the way that he responded to questions, through the quotations that he made, even the way that he taught and rebuked um, even Satan as he was tempted. God's own word, not only in Deuteronomy 6.6, commands us to memorize Scripture, but think about what's written in Colossians 3.16, that Christians, this new church in Colossae, should let the message of Christ, which is the gospel, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. It's clear that a Christian has a responsibility to know God's word. But there's also benefits to it. The benefit of memorizing God's word, the same as it is with children, is that it has the propensity to conform our mind and transform our spirit to the image that Christ has for us. This is what's written in Romans 12, 2. Christians are admonished not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their mind, that by the testing they may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The benefit of memorizing Scripture is that it changes, literally, the neural pathways that are inside of our brains. The repetition that it takes to memorize Scripture changes the way that we as a sinful man think. There's, of course, benefits to that. It helps us in confrontation with sin, but it also helps us to live life abundantly and obediently. The psalmist in Psalm 119 pleased with God, even making this reference in verse 11, that the message of Christ dwells... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's Colossians 3.16. Psalm 119 asked the question, how should a young man keep his path pure? How should he remain pure? By knowing God's word and knowing the truth. And if you keep reading Psalm 19, you see this attitude of eagerness, even an argumentative attitude, pleading with God that he would be able to understand his written word. One more reason why we should memorize Scripture. If we understand what Scripture is as God's revealed Special revelation to man, literally the word deonumos, God's breathed out inspired word. It's perfect, it's inerrant, it doesn't change, it's eternal, but it's also sufficient. Within the bindings of the Bible, we find everything that the Christian needs for life and for faith. That doesn't mean that it answers every question we could ever come up with, but it answers every question that we actually need an answer to. There's a purpose for Scripture. Part of that purpose is to admonish one another, to live in a community with believers and to be able to have this relationship to encourage one another. This is a struggling thing as a Christian because... When people struggle, it seems like we don't know how to respond. We find ourselves jumping around and trying to find ways to make things right, but the reality is the Scripture is what guides us and helps us in doing that. And memorizing Scripture makes it possible for us, makes it possible for us to provide the encouragement that is needed. If you might take a minute, just look at what's written in Proverbs. Proverb twenty-five, eleven. 
Proverbs 25, 11. The reason we should be able to encourage one another, memorizing Scripture, to have things ready whenever we need them. The Bible says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That we might be able to provide encouragement to one another when we need it. I think it'd be hard to understand Psalm 1, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 6 any other way than there is an importance for Christians to memorize Scripture. But I want to drop this back into the context, and I actually want to bring this back to where it relates to leading a family. The reality is, and I want to back away just for a second and, and understand something. The perspective that people have in this world is normally not formed by analytical thought. Most of the perspectives that people have in this world is based off of assumption. Because it's formed whenever you're 8 and 10 and 12, and a lot of the times the perspectives that we have are inherited from our parents. That's a scary thing if you're a parent. To illustrate this really fast, Do we have anyone who's a football fan? Anyone pro NFL sports fans? I've only been here since, um, since September, so I actually don't know what everyone's teams are. So this is a dangerous subject for me right now. Is anyone a Saints fan? We got one Saints. Yes! What about Chiefs? I guess they're a little bit closer. Anyone a Chiefs fan? Thank goodness. Cowboys? What's the big one? Alabama. <laughs> no, I'll get there. I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. Okay, so we have some sports fans. I wonder, why are you a fan of the team that you're a fan of? Man, growing up, you know what football... T- program I always got to see the San Francisco 49ers it was my dad's team and we watched it every single week I grew up cheering for Steve Young for Jerry Rice and I knew all of them more than I knew any other team and then as I became older in my rebellious spirit I decided I was going to cheer for my grandpa's team in spite of my dad so I started cheering for the Packers just to rile him up But it wasn't based on analytical thought. I mean, these were assumptions. These were the teams that I was exposed to. These were things that I was familiar with, and that's why I cheered for them. Let's talk about SEC, or go back even to the days of the Southwest Conference. I'm sure we're all Razorback fans in this room. (laughs) And then some of us might win. (laughs) Hey, I can cheer for Alabama, though, even though I'm a Razorback fan. You know what team I cannot cheer for? That orange, ugly orange, longhorn team from Texas. I, you know, the way that I was raised, I was raised to understand that Texas was of the devil. 
And I actually did a little bit of investigating because this is so born into an Arkansan. I want you to think about this for a second. There is not one high school football team in the state of Arkansas that has the color orange. Not one. Not one that I could find. It's born into us. And it's totally on assumption. If you followed Razorback football for the past four years, you know this is... There's no analytical thought in being a Razorback fan. Just saying. Yeah. Eric said amen. <laughs> well, I want to bring this home. Think about the imperative given to us in this passage to love God. To memorize scripture. These are attributes of our lives that our children see and they model their life after because it's not based on analytical thought. It's based on assumption. Just like me cheering for the San Francisco 49ers. I was born in Rogers, Arkansas, not even remotely close to California. Which brings up the subject of a worldview. This perspective that we have, this basis of values that we adopt. As we talk about a worldview, I want to talk about what it means to shape our worldview and to model it the way that God has asked us to do in His Word. After all, Moses is writing this to remind the people who are leaving His leadership that they are the ones that are in charge of their worldview. It's a dangerous thing whenever we try to vicariously live faith for our children. It won't work. It has to become their own, and the only way that it can become their own is if they start to challenge the values that they have assumed to be true. And the only way they can successfully do that in a world that is completely counter-biblical, in fact, wages war against what God has written in His Word, is if they know Scripture well enough to know truth. Our worldview, like the teams that we choose to cheer for, has been shaped by what we learn, and what we commit ourselves to, what we see demonstrated for us at an early age. Our worldview is what shapes the values that we have as an individual. And of course, the values that we have has an impact on the behavior that we demonstrate, the choices that we make. And worse yet than that, our behavior has an impact on the world around us. There are consequences, whether good or bad, to the behavior that we live out. And so when we start to evaluate this question, is the impact that I'm having on the world the impact that I want to have on the world? If the answer is no, we have to ask ourselves, what have I done wrong? And really go beyond that and ask, why have I done that? What's wrong with my values? Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about this issue of idolatry in our lives, especially when it comes to raising children, that we teach children that the number one thing that they could have in life is success, or maybe in football, the greatest thing that you could have is popularity at school, or that you could be a, a, a great athlete 
let it contribute to the world and you can marvel at these things. But our focus as God's people should be that we love God. It is both a choice and an overwhelming consequence of our life being transformed. And so as we talk about this, this worldview, I want to drop into shape not only that we should memorize Scripture because it shapes our worldview, but, but what that worldview should actually look like. What that worldview should actually look like. And the first part is that our worldview has to be one that knows God. Our worldview needs to be one that knows God. And here's what I mean by that, because we live in a world, and if you're looking at this, I want to look at this from two sides, what the world says and what the Bible says. And hopefully I'm not overly dramatic this morning. But what the world says about God is there is no God. And this idea is getting more and more popular in the world today. There is no God. It's an outstanding prospect that people assert. But the Bible tells us that there is a God. Not only that, the Bible tells us about this God, that he's completely powerful, that he's all good, that he loves, that in fact, that he's even created. He's an emotional being. He feels disconnected from us when we abandon him. He feels angry, just like a father gets angry when he sees a child make the wrong decision. The Bible tells us this God isn't one that's created everything as some mad scientist and then ran off and created new worlds or whatever but that this God is incredibly intentional, that He's created everything with the purpose of having a relationship with His creation, and He's done it, and in fact, He's the one holding it all together. He's the one holding it all together. Think about how dramatic that difference is between there is no God, and not only is there a God, but He's personal, and that He loves us. The second part of a worldview that we need to adapt or adopt is an understanding of who man is, who we are. Again, that secular humanistic perspective of the world says that man is basically good, that we all have some benevolent motivation within us that we want to do good in the world. And not only that, but... Man's an accident. I think about this for a second. The humanistic perspective of man is that the reason we exist is a consequence of generations of evolutionary accidents. That man is an accident. The Bible teaches us something totally different. The Bible teaches us that man... And I want you to think about the implications of that. That man is an accident, and therefore, I want you to think about what that means. Man doesn't have value. We're an accident, and we're basically good, and we're just doing things, and we just live in an accident-prone world. The Bible tells us that man not only is special, but that we were created in God's image with a purpose distinct from anything else in creation, that man was created in God's image. In fact, born 
with a conscious mind, with a soul, with all of these other attributes that do not exist anywhere else in the animal kingdom, anywhere else in the plant kingdom, anything else in creation. Man is intrinsically valuable because he was created in the image of God. In fact, all life is intrinsically valuable because it's created by God. Here's the hard part, though. Man is not at the core of who he is good, according to the Bible. The Bible says that man, at the core of everything, is rotten. In fact, that man is born rotten. I have two, two wonderful little babies. And here's the truth. If you really want to understand the evil, wretched depravity of man... All you need to do is volunteer to serve in our church's nursery. My children are wretched. And I can control their behavior for now. I I, I hear that as they get older, that's harder to do. But they're wretched. Down to the core. The Bible says that as a consequence of their sin, they're constantly in a state of running away from God. If we look at Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, this picture of sin is that man is constantly in a state of running away from the reality of who God is because we don't want to confront the sinfulness that is born inside of us. I've spent some time the past couple of weeks talking about the necessity to confront our own sinfulness and, and even understand our own sinfulness. But this is such an important part of our worldview because it forms everything else. We struggle. I, I've been teaching um, the third, third, third grade Sunday school class, and we were taking prayer requests this morning, this morning and I, I love this because it prompted a conversation that really was right into the lesson We said we should pray for everyone in the whole world that they receive God's blessings. And then somebody else said, except for those that cuss. We should not pray for them. (laughs) Oh, and it took me back because I I just saw immediately what was wrong in this worldview. That man's basically good until they make the decision to do bad. And so our whole lesson today was on this reality that man is not necessarily good at all. In fact, at the core of who man is, he's rotten. Here's the impact of having this biblical worldview. Not only do we get to see ourselves more clearly, but we get to understand how incredibly merciful God is to love us. I mentioned that biblical narrative, that cycle that happens over and over again. God keeps coming back to this wretched, depraved generation after generation and restoring a relationship with them all the way up into the point that He allows Himself to become flesh in the form of Christ, coming and being born as a baby, forsaking all the glories of heaven to come and live in a world that has to suffer the consequences of sin. And He's done all of this so that He can live a life Tempted exactly the way that we were tempted so that he can become a more compassionate Savior and God, that he understands exactly what I'm going through. And he did it even for a bigger reason than that. He did it so that he could become the propitiation of my own sins, that he could become the substitution of my life that deserves death. And he died hanging on a cross. 
I can really start to have a clearer picture of how wonderful this God is. Finally, once and for all, He makes a pathway that makes it possible for me not to be redeemed and fall into the cycle over and over again. This issue of the law that's never going to be able to save me but only further convicts me. He makes it possible to actually be transformed in the image of Him. And this is the whole reason for memorizing Scripture that we can be transformed. I mentioned not only does it cause us to live in obedience, but that it, it forces us. It forces us. To carry with us the word that is a mirror to our lives. It convicts us when we need it. It encourages and prompts us to do things when we need it. The two basic, basic sides of the Christian worldview are this. One, that we know God. Two, that we know ourselves. Let me add one more element. That we know truth. Truth. Because if we look at this from, again, the humanistic, secular perspective that the world presents, we're going to find that truth is relative. I don't understand this, and I keep trying to understand this perspective because I I don't want to come across as flippant in any way, just um, going against those that disagree with me. How can truth be relative? I mean, if that's the case, why do we even bother taking tests in school? I mean, if truth is relative, my truth is that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's not. Truth is absolute. It doesn't change. It's, it's recorded in God's inspired word for the purpose of encouraging us, for the purpose of instructing us, for the purpose of raising us, for the purpose of transforming us and for the purpose of making us people who can encourage people. Three parts to the Christian worldview. One, that we know who God is. Two, that we know who we are. Three, that we know what truth is. And again, this worldview isn't adopted by accident. Most of the elements of our worldview outside of review, of, of reflection, occur to us as a result of assumption. It's like picking a football team to cheer for. I know that there are some people who grew tired of cheering for a losing team and decided to choose for Alabama. That's fine. That's a good process. You, you reflected on you know, a weird value system, and you said that my behavior is causing a weird impact. Every week, I'm... In fact, I gave up. I had some Razorback socks that I wore out of pride, and I had to hang those up, and I just bought a pair of socks that had bacon on them, and that's what I wore on Sunday. And, you know, and if I would have been more analytical in my thought, I would have reviewed this, and I would have said... I'm making decisions that have an impact on my world because I'm depressed every week that my team loses. And I would have made a better decision like Eric to chew for Alabama. And, but I didn't do that because instead I thought loyalty was important. And that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but my point's this. We can evaluate the behaviors and the values that we have, but most of the time whenever we don't do that, 
the consequences, our values are based completely on assumption, which isn't a bad thing. It just means that you need to make sure that the assumption that you're setting your generation after you up with, whether that's grandchildren, children, whether it's not your children at all, but it's another generation of the church, that they see modeled in you the correct values. There's not room for error. This biblical narrative is heartbreaking. Faithlessness and falling from God. I'm sorry we let you down, Eric. In all seriousness, it's heartbreaking. God provides a permanent answer. And our faith can pay dividends in generations to come. has to be authentic. I do not have the benefit of having I do not have the benefit of being raised in a Christian home. When I started going to church, I went to church to get away from home. And I always thought it was incredible that Church really wasn't a place of people like me who were trying to get away from their parents, but it was in fact a place where generations were coming. Where grandparents saw their kids every single week. Generation of faithfulness. These values that are demonstrated, I mean, on one side of the fence, I, I envy all of those people who have these assumed values that they they get to live with and benefit from. But on the other side, I'm very thankful for the grace that God showed me, not only in in letting me grow up the way that I did, but providing me with an understanding of transformation that I was able to review and reflect on the values that I had assumed. That God's word was able to be used in my life to transform me, to change me, God has a message in the cycle of, of faithful, faithlessness that he is going to continue to rescue us from our own depravity because he loves us. But if we understand God's nature, a part of that love is a judgment that is coming. While we're here on earth, we have all the opportunity that we need to repent of the nature that is born inside of us so that we can have the relationship that God desperately wants with us. But the clock ticks to an end. At the end of the age, everyone will be judged. And if we've accepted Christ as our Savior... God won't see our own sinfulness, but He'll see His own perfection when He looks on us. We'll be able to be imputed with the righteousness of Christ as we're judged and and brought into glory with Him. But without that sacrifice, without accepting that gift of sacrifice for ourselves, God judges us permanently and forever to the death that we ultimately deserve.
It's a big deal becoming a dad. I'm coming up on two years and a couple of months. I'm really, I don't have all the experience that some of you do, but I think about the consequence that my own life can have on generations to come. I'm certain of my own salvation. Christ has reassured me of my salvation. He's blessed me with transformation, and I can point to different parts of my life that are evident, and I can say, I changed, and it wasn't me that changed, it was God who changed me. But what if I live faithlessly and my kids see that? What if one day I get to look forward to being in heaven and I'm never reunited with my little girl or my little boy? Or even worse, what if I don't get to look forward to being reunited with my mom or my dad? What about all the generations that came after them? My grandkids and my great-grandkids. What about those generations that I never got to meet that I get to look forward to seeing in heaven? My faith, if my children can see an authentic faith in my life, the same reason Moses is pleading with Israel is that generations after us will be saved because of the right worldview. Know God, know ourself, and know truth. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And I don't want to plea with you and, and ask you. I think we all know how to respond to a message when we hear the realities of truth presented to us. Here's what I want to say. If you've never taken a moment to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there's a day coming when that decision isn't going to be an option anymore. Don't put that off for the sake of not just yourself, but for the generations that get to come after you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way that it reveals ourselves to ourselves, but also for the way that it illuminates who you are, that we might know you. God, I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your compassion. God, I'm overwhelmed with the, the grace that you've shown me in my life. God, I pray that as we sing the song of invitation, that you would continue to carry this message in our hearts, that you would convict us of our own need for you, God, that you would help reveal to us the sin in our own lives. Even if we're saved, God, the idolatry that we've creeped into our own households, God, I just pray that you would make us a generation that has consequences on the generations to come. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would, stand with us this morning as we sing this song.